0: In my job as the education librarian in the Harold B. Lee Library at Brigham Young University, the other day I was exploring some research that connects the skills of drawing and writing. Some out there may ask, how in the world are those two things connected? While they both use our hands and some kind of marking instrument like a pencil, drawing and writing may seem to involve such different skills and abilities that there would be no way to connect them. However, research shows us a different perspective. Research has shown that for the youngest children, making pictures is the precursor to building their writing ability later on. But drawing is not just about the developmental precursor to being able to write. Studies have shown that all children integrate writing and drawing in very creative and sophisticated ways. Writing is one way we communicate, but especially in the 21st century, visual images are also another important way we communicate. Helping our children to understand that knowledge can be expressed in a wide range of forms is a great way to connect drawing and writing together. Research today shows that all abilities in all communication forms are much more connected than we previously thought. For example, one study found that students who exhibited severe deficits in writing made significant improvement in a program that combined writing and drawing. A fellow teacher who works in a local school has reported this same effect to me when he notes that as a teacher, his students see grand improvements in both their reading and writing abilities when they learn how to draw. So while that paper with doodles along the edge may look like boredom, or that colorful crayon masterpiece is only something to be mounted on the fridge, research may help us to see that maybe these drawings are really helping to support students' development in other communication forms like writing. And that's one thing research can help us to understand from Rachel's World.
1: This is Worlds Awaiting. How do you get a preschooler ready to read? Coming up, Rachel talks to Lisa Cohn, who will give some valuable tips on how to accomplish this. Lisa Cohn is the Utah Education Network's Community Partnerships Manager. Prior to her work at UEN, Lisa was an educator and administrator in Utah and Arizona, working with emotionally disabled students.
0: Here's the conversation with Rachel and Lisa. Welcome Lisa, we're so glad to have you today. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about getting our kids ready to read. I know this is a big thing. We have our preschoolers and our kindergartners, and they're just emerging into some of these great literacies and especially textual literacies and reading. There's some really great things that parents can do to get their kids ready to read. And I know in our Utah Education Network, we've come up with five categories that help parents kind of engage their emergent literacies with their uh, preschoolers. So so what are those categories? Can you tell us a little bit about them? Well, so UEN has partnered with the Utah State
2: Library, and they created a project from the American Library Association, but we've kind of taken that and personalized it to the Utah Kids Ready to Read. And Utah Kids Ready to Read has made recommendations for librarians, for parents, for caregivers, with these five skills: talk, sing, read, write, and play. And we can talk a little bit more about each category. But
0: every single piece of that is really important in getting kids ready to read. And you really have to have all five in place. You can't, you can't just do one or the other. So let's talk. Let's do talk a little bit more specifically about each one. What about talking? What is? What can we do with talking to help our kids being ready to read?
2: So we know that kids with um, greater vocabulary. More words in their world do have an easier access or easier time learning to read. So just talking in the car, there's a great little YouTube video of this woman in the grocery store, and she's singing about the peas and the carrots. (laughs) And they just show this woman going through the grocery store, and she's like, let's get the peas. And people are looking at her like she's crazy. And then they show that she's talking to her child while they're grocery shopping. And that's just when we're grocery shopping, when we're in the car, when we're at the park, just identifying
0: things at home. Really engaging. And I think one of the exciting things about that natural talk is not only does it increase vocabulary, but it also increases their sense of grammar and how is the language constructed and what does the language mean. And that particularly comes really important when we start getting into text because we have to understand that kind of meaning and construction as well as knowing what the word means. I mean having a word like cat, it's easy enough to read it, but if they're you know, if it's in a sentence and how how is it playing in that sentence is also important. And if you've never seen a cat before, it's not going to mean anything. And that's the other piece that's
2: really important is that also parents should be communicating in the language that they're most comfortable Mm. with. Really, if you're not a strong English speaker, don't speak to your child in English. Children are amazing and they're adaptable and parents should not only be talking in their native language but reading in their native language Mm. to their child so that they're comfortable. That
0: helps build those skills. It's really important. I think that's an interesting thing because when you talk about comfort, that's really important but when we talk about singing as one of these categories. Not everybody is comfortable singing. So how do we engage with that, with that element of being ready to read?
2: I am most definitely one of those people who is not comfortable singing even in front of my own children. And you can pick up on them. I was beyond embarrassed that my kids we were on a big road trip the other day. And I thought, Oh, my gosh, what have I done? Most parents, most families sing in the car. My kids were singing commercial TV commercial (laughs) jingles. And I just thought, I thought, you know, well... they are paying attention and we do you know we talk about those things but there is singing all around us even just the national anthem they're singing often in school but things that you're comfortable with singing just helps with rhythm and yeah. rhyme which is really impor- important parts of learning to read is yeah. is understanding the language like you said
0: and i think there's so many resources available you don't have to be a singer yourself i think you're, you 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 uh, pointed that out but there's streaming audio kinds of things and even you know CD- CDs and all those other kind of things and it's really cool for me to one of the things that singing can do is actually kind of connect with play really well so I think one of the things we can do is if we're more comfortable playing but not quite as comfortable singing then we can connect we can connect to the other elements of this and if we wanted to do a singing we could put on a CD and maybe dance or act out the song or something like that and that extends out of you know out of our comfort zones but what other kinds of things can we do with play what how does play fit into all of this play
2: is absolutely the most important job for children. And children learn through play constantly. They're talking through their play. They're using their imagination play is really important. So not to prescribe it. Again, I'm not an expert, but to let kids explore and even use the computer, use the internet, use the cell phone or the iPad to let them play. There's lots of painting and creating Mm, that is not prescribed. It's imagining. And that I think is the important thing
0: about Play. I think that's the interesting thing. I think when most people see those five categories, play is probably the one thing that they don't necessarily connect with being ready to read because there's not always a textual element to play. But one of the things I have definitely noticed with kids in play is they tend to make a narrative out of play. So they are expressing that kind of story structure, the kinds of things that they will experience when te- in text really well as part of their play, they always engage with that kind of more sense of story in play as well. And when they're playing with other children, one of the things that's really important is
2: problem solving. It, and it's interesting, but you know, often we want to go out there and help them solve yeah. that problem. Who's going to be it for the game? And oh, that wasn't fair. My instinct as the mom is to go out and and, and make that easy for them. But really, that doesn't help the children. They've got to play and and figure it out and and come to that problem solving on their own. And and they do; they do
0: yeah. just fine. It's, it's building those critical skills in a very real-world environment because I think that's that's the hardest thing with those kind of critical literacies is you have to have the context in the real-world environment to really build them strongly. So play is the way that kids can do that with the real world. Exactly, exactly. And then another one that I think people don't realize when you're talking about literacy
2: is that writing, coloring, and and holding, uh, developing those fine motor skills. Mm. It's really interesting as I've given some of my preschool pioneer workshops, some of the teachers have said, kindergarten teachers have told me, they are getting kids with soft hands Mm. from so much online stuff. And it came from a comment I was making about my son's preschool teacher. He said, don't let him use markers, use crayons, because they have more of a um, resistance. And and I never even thought of that. And and then these uh, kindergarten teachers were saying... Oh, we are getting so many kids who cannot even hold on to a pencil.
0: Yeah. And it's and it's not just about making letters. Or I mean, with, I think when we think writing, we might think, oh, you know, they need to start forming words and, you know, writing their name and stuff. But it's not about just that. It's about drawing and interacting with material and preparing for, for that kind of thing. So even, I think in that case, crafts and crayons and those kinds of things can be a really preparatory element to writing as well exactly expression you know yeah.
2: that's why we write is for expression and a 2 year old's expression is not going to look like a 8 year old's expression but
0: it was an expression he picked for whatever reason the black marker and And then the yellow marker. And I think that's also, again, connecting these five things. For me, one of the things I love about this kind of writing thing is also connecting it with talk. So if your child draws a picture, then you start talking about it. What is this in this picture? You know, why did you pick the black? Or why did you put that here? Or what does this represent? Or, you know, if if you could change this, what would you do? And I think that that, again, builds some of those critical literacies as well, because they're analyzing their own expression, but they're also able to talk and write at the same time.
2: Exactly. And we there's even this some great stuff on the web. There's um, it's called Storybird. Oh, and it wonderful, has these yeah. wonderful pictures and it's a great way to use pictures, it's just a picture. But for a parent and child to engage and say, well, what do you think is happening here? And even the parent could write and model, you know, what the child is saying, whether they're typing or,
0: or handwriting something, the story, and then you could create that together. And that's a great point about modeling that really connects to reading. Because I think especially when we talk about reading itself at this age level, that modeling is probably the key to this reading aloud and other things that model that behavior is, is that reading key at this age. Absolutely, absolutely. Making sure that, you know, when you're asking your child to
2: go pick out your book, that you're able to say... Because I'm going to go read my book when they're at that independent level to be modeling having your own book, too.
0: I think uh, the research clearly shows that one of the most, the highest indicators of school success is having parents who read. And it's not necessarily read to the children, but it is parents who are readers. And that doesn't mean, when I say parents who read, that doesn't mean reading fiction. It means reading newspapers. It means reading magazines. It means reading websites. It means... It's even reading as you're driving in the car
2: and reading the signs you know just taking the time
0: to to play while you're doing that kind of Interaction, modeling that behavior, I think, is so important, and and there's also something too about that connectedness too. I think for me, reading aloud to a child is also about the bonding experience that happens when you connect with each other. And the nice thing about all of these elements that we've been talking about, it is about bonding. It's about engaging and interacting with your child in a very fundamental way. Well, and I think one of the things too is that parents also
2: need to remember that the library is there, mm, story yeah. time offers yes. all of these, you know, you talk, sing, read, write, and play at all story there. time. Yeah. And it's all free and it's always age appropriate. So that's one of the things that I think is important for communities to remember is to make sure that people know about the libraries are there because yeah. not
0: everybody has access to books. I think that's so true that in any community, no matter what community you in, there's going to be those resources. There's going to be a library. There's going to be an early childhood center of some type that you might be able to connect with that will, that will really help you engage your children, especially in the in the places you don't feel quite so comfortable with <laughs> or access resources you don't have. Yeah.
2: Exactly. And I'm just going to push one little plug. If anybody out there is listening, you want to go to the Utah kids Ready to Read org website. We have a little web search
0: where you can go. You just fill out a little survey, engage with your kids, and we'll send you a free book. Very cool. Because I think it's important for us to find those community resources that can help us. And, you know, for Utah, we've got some great ones here. But if you don't have can't get the access to the ones we need here in Utah there's great just check out your community because I'm sure they'll you'll find some there as well exactly well thank you so much Lisa for your time today it's been wonderful talking to you thank you thanks so much
1: that was our host Rachel Wadham speaking with Lisa Cohn manager of the Utah Education Network's Community Partnerships Next up, Rachel talks with a successful author about his passion, helping boys become better readers. Chris Crow is a professor of English at Brigham Young University and is the author of adolescent age books, including Mississippi Trial, 1955, Getting Away With Murder, The True Story of the Emmett Till Case, and most recently, Death Coming
0: Up the Hill. Here's Rachel and Chris. Welcome, Chris. We're glad to have you today. Let's chat a little bit about boys and reading. I know that there has been lots of research done about engaging boys with reading and having to help them be better readers and to engage them with the written word more. And I know that that's something that you're passionate about is, is helping helping guys to read. So speak to us a little bit about your experiences with reading as, as a young man and, and how did you how did you find that passion for reading and, and english and writing
3: part of it is growing up in a house where people read and my mom wasn't much a reader but my dad was and he read the same kind of book over and over again he read mystery novels and so detective i mean what the range is pretty broad the raunchy mysteries didn't matter he's read mysteries like candy and um and we had magazines and and set in those days encyclopedia sets and stuff like that and And I just liked, uh, you know, sometimes dad would come home from work and read us when we were children, read a children's book, mostly Dr. Seuss. And I think that experience was kind of, uh, is nostalgic for me. But uh, in my family, not all, there are five kids, not all of us are avid readers, but we all grew up in the same household. So I don't know part of its personality, but um, I think I liked the idea of learning something new. I remember going through the encyclopedia set just looking for random stuff just because it was interesting to read Uh, uh, or finding stories that were interesting. So it it was just, for me, a way of... uh killing time maybe in a very productive way so the hardy boys books those series books at a certain stage of life and then when i got a little bit older i think i became more eclectic or if i heard about a book like catch 22 i'd pick it up and if you know if i didn't like it i wouldn't i would i just throw it back but if i liked it i'd just stay with it so i had a real random reading experience as a teenager and really didn't read much of what I was supposed to read. So I still remember ninth grade, Great Expectations. <laughs> I could not get past that. Uh, it just didn't, it did not connect with me. And my junior year, The Scarlet Letter was another uh, book that honestly, I didn't know. I thought it was like a post story, The Purloined Letter. <laughs> So I kept looking for, where's the letter, you know? <laughs> where's the missive? And it was just totally foreign language to me. Uh, so, and Shakespeare, I think, was the same way. I just, I wasn't mature enough as a reader to, or patient enough. So, um, for a long time, I, I didn't like Jane Austen. I mean, a really long time. And when I when I think about it now, uh, I, I think it's because a novel of manners or a novel of subtlety was just beyond me. That I was reading for action, for things happening, and not necessarily adventure, but just where there were the plot movement had to do with action as opposed to emotion or relationships. So for years, when I was teaching high school, even I would tell my students the problem with Pride and Prejudice: nothing ever happens. You know, <laughs> they sit around and talk about stuff, but nobody ever does anything. And. Uh, so I I, th- I think that's very much the boy in me, wanting to read about stuff that happens as opposed to listening to people talk. And I finally did read Pride and Prejudice and thought it was a brilliant novel. Part of it, I think, it changed for me as being a, a father of adult girls and appreciating the father so much <laughs> yeah. in the novel. Uh, but uh, so I think with boys, part of it too, and this isn't original with me, but. If you think about where we learn to read, it's in our mother's lap most often. Then in our primary and elementary grades, it's usually teachers are female, and so some people think they speculate that for some boys they associate books and reading with females, Mm. and so for a teenage boy who's trying to develop his machismo, that that vision of I'm a man, I'm becoming a man. Books aren't a part of that because women book books are women's things; they're yeah. not men's things. And so, men are about sports or hunting or whatever. Whatever the kid happens, is however he grows up, thinking about that. And it wasn't that wasn't the case for me. But I wonder if with some of the students I've encountered over the years that that is certainly not a conscious thing, but it's just something that as they start getting aware of the world around them, they realize. Well, you know, I don't really see men reading, and I don't see men teaching about poems and plays and novels. That's something that women do, and since I'm not a woman, that's something I don't do. And and uh, I my son is not a reader, and I've never known why exactly, because he grew up with books, and we read books to him, and he read a lot of books when he was a kid, and at some point he just... Turned off the switch, and uh, in in talking with him when he was in high school, he uh, part of it was the way he was evaluated for reading. Mm. So he, because teachers would ask trivial questions like what color was the guy's shoe or something. You know, on page seventy nine. And he's, very, he's got a great memory, so he, he felt like my obligation as a reader is to remember everything I've read because I might have to regurgitate that at some uh, point. So each page then was a layer of burden. And so a long novel meant there's lots of trivial details I have to recall. So for him, he that's I think I think that's why he hated reading because he didn't want to keep track of all this stuff. Yeah. He never let himself just go in a story and because I remember once telling him Jonathan just skip, you know, I mean just skim, and he said, "Well, that's cheating, Dad. You can't. I can't do that. I've got it." Mm. And I think who reads a Victorian novel one word at a time? You know, everybody <laughs> yeah. skims those. Yeah. But he, so what's I think school sort of shaped his view of reading. in a a way that was negative for him as opposed to the way readers read books is we go back and reread, we skip when we get bored, we skim to get to where the plot picks up again. We do all kinds of strategies that he somehow was convinced I can't do that.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of when we discuss this as professionals, a lot of the badness of not reading for boys is kind of laid at the feet of of some of the educational things that we do as teachers and classrooms that it prevents them from getting into the story and getting into – just that flow that you really need to feel passionate about something. So, how do you think, as parents and even as teachers, we maybe can con- combat some of that negativity, like your son had in class, where we where we regiment it so much that we we lose the beauty of what's going on with the story?
3: Well, the structure of school is we have to be accountable. Kids have to be accountable for doing work. So that's why we have quizzes and tests and things and book reports. And um, I I because I just did what everybody did. I used to assign book reports when my kids, you know, my students were reading books. And uh, I hated reading them, because they were boring, and this was before Amazon, but uh, because I knew they hadn't read the book. But because they'd met the the requirements of the assignment, I had to give them a grade for it, even though my whole goal was, I want you to read the book, I don't care about the stupid paper. But the paper was horrible, and they hated them, too. So they hated writing book reports. I hated reading book reports. I'm thinking, why am I doing this? So one of my colleagues said, you know, one time I tried just interviewing my students about the book. And I thought, okay, I'll do anything besides this stupid stuff. And so uh, I told the students, you you know, you have an elective reading assignment, so every term you have to read a book. When, when you're done, you bring the book and you set up an appointment with me and we'll talk about the book. Yeah. And you gotta hand me the book. So then I would just flip through it. And some teachers think, well, oh, I can't have them do reports on books I haven't read. And yeah. you know, as long as I have the book, I can. So I'd flip through it and say, so who's Jack? You know, Or what's going on here? I'd read a section. And then we could have a conversation about a book which I re- and it wasn't strategic on my part. It was something I just realized over time. I was teaching them to do what real readers do yeah. to talk about what they've read as opposed to writing a report or g- taking a, a – now, you know, a, a, what's that reader re- – the online test.
0: Yeah. Accelerated, accelerated reader. Accelerated reader. You know, something <laughs> yeah. else, which
3: again is trying yeah. to be a, make them accountable, but it's not what real readers do. Yeah. When when I read a great novel, I think, I want to find someone else who's read it so we can talk we about can chat, it. chat, yeah. And, and that's what readers do. And so for me, for, for my last five or six years of high school teaching, that's all I did. So I, there were no more book reports. There were no more book projects. It was when it was elective reading, they came back and sat at my desk. They handed me the book and we talked about their book. And if I thought they were bluffing, I would just say because sometimes you could tell they hadn't read. it, I'd just hand it back to them, and say, "Let's let's make another appointment to talk about this some more," so they could have a chance yeah. to a do over. Yeah. Uh, and so and the kids then who were weren't readers wouldn't even bother to sign up. But one I had a kid and he read a, a book for the first time. He was a sophomore, and I'd had him as a freshman. and I had him again as a sophomore, and I'd just keep pitching books to him because I thought sooner or later there's got to be something he's yeah. going to like. And there was a book called Little Britches by Ralph Moody that for some weird reason he liked it and fortunately there were more, Moody had written more books and so he he was and so you know 10 years ago I got an email from him saying I still remember that stupid book you got me to read and, you know but <laughs> I it. mean it was but he was proud of the fact that he had become a reader and I was yeah. proud of the fact that I'd finally got him to read a book so it was I think giving him freedom because my rule was it just has to be a book yeah just has to be a book. Pick a book, read it. That's all. That's all I require. And so some kids respond better to freedom as opposed to dictatorial, you got to read from this list, or you can only read Newbery winners or something.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I tell my students, um, there's no such thing as, as a non-reader. It's only readers who haven't found the right book yeah. yet. And I think that's so true. And I think it's our job as teachers to help kids find the right book. And it's our job as parents yeah. to help kids find the right book. So how do we go about that? What are what are some strategies that we can use to, to help connect kids with the right book?
3: We have to be a reader. So it's hard for people who aren't readers to connect kids with books because, well, you don't even know what to connect them to. Yeah. So, And maybe not everybody has time to read. So I, one of the things I think of magazines like Hornbook is all those reviews. It's a great way to get a sense of what's out there. And even if I don't know the book, if I read a review that I trust, I can then at least make a general recommendation for mm-hmm. someone who likes a book like this. One thing that talking with my students in those book interviews taught me was that – I began to see these patterns emerge that certain kinds of kids liked certain kinds of books. And so maybe two years later, i would have a kid just like Rachel, and I would think, I'd think you know, Rachel really loved. And so yeah. I'd say, you know, I think you might try this. And then if they tried it and loved it, then it was like I was this guru that I had this magic insight <laughs> into what they would like. But it yeah. was from interviewing hundreds of kids about books yeah. and just seeing what certain kinds of kids liked and learning about the books myself that made it easier to recommend books to kids.
0: Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us
3: today. Great to be here. Thanks.
0: That was Rachel and author Chris
1: Crow. Now here's Renee Cunningham, the principal of Wasatch Elementary in Provo, Utah, talking about some of her favorite books from childhood with our own Clara Goodwin.
4: What is a book from your childhood that made a difference in your life? oh my goodness there you know as as a child all summer long i would read when i when i wasn't in school i spent my summers reading and i'll have to say that i probably read charlotte's web probably at least a hundred times and then coming back as a teacher was just thrilled to be able to teach that to my third grade students another book actually a series of books was beverly cleary's henry and Ribsy. i remember reading those just as a child and i remember one particular book, I think it was Henry and the Paper Route, even as a teacher, got connected in that book. It's just kind of funny how the main character, Henry, does a paper route and then he does a paper drive at school. And as a teacher at the school that I taught at, we got a paper drive going and we ended up with more papers than we even knew what to do with. But that came <laughs> that came from that book. and. I got my class interested in Beverly Cleary's books and we had a, a readathon a where they could read as many books of hers as they could and we ended up writing her letters. She, she was pretty elderly at the time and when we wrote her we got a response back saying you know don't expect her to write because she's quite aged and, and not able to, to respond to everybody's letters that they send, but we did get one back from her. We got a personalized letter just telling us how much she appreciated the students sharing the books that they were reading with her and and that she was glad to be part of their lives and she responded to me also. I told her about our paper drive experience and, and she was just happy that I was being able to get children attached to reading through, through her books. So that was a, a great experience. But there are so many books, I can't even begin to tell you all the millions of books that I've read in my life and still enjoy reading as, as an adult.
1: Thanks to Clara Goodwin and the principal of Wasatch Elementary School, Renee Cunningham, for that fun interview. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143. On the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.